How's your wind? Episode 1 uh, E now. Right, run part 5. And uh, before we get started here, just let the listening public know that uh, we've got an Instagram page just for fun. At uh, Black Cats Run, you're welcome to go in and give that a follow. And maybe down the road we can... Use that as a space if people are interested to try to generate ideas about other things to talk about. So, again, that's at, at Black Cats Run on Instagram if you want to check that out. Uh, so we're continuing now to develop and transition from talking about the concept of systems as a broad conceptual dynamic. And instead what we want to do, or um, I guess instead is not the right word, but by Extending that, what we want to do is talk about where do we see this stuff apply in practical examples of systems, and what can that tell us about the potential value of these systems of training that shape us as athletes, as participant in sports. Um, There's other ways to be participant in sports without being the athlete, right? Maybe as a coach, um, or maybe even as a spectator or um, official uh, right, there's multiple different ways we can be involved in sport, um, and to try to think about, you know, with those systems, if we understand kind of what's driving those, can we reach some conclusions about how effective those are? Do we really want to be using those? Are there ways that we could tailor or edit those systems? Should we just get rid of those systems? Um, and can we then maybe think about how we can design? systems better and is a systems approach maybe overall just kind of a failed concept because it maybe has come too much from the wrong places. So I think if we're looking at this stuff uh, in a conceptual vacuum, and by a conceptual vacuum I just mean that we eliminate all of the historical and cultural pressures and we were going to sort of thought experiment our way forward and say what should this stuff really look like? Um, from the ground up, what should a system look like? Well, it would be something that would be optimized based on the results that you see. And I think we've seen gestures at that throughout the history of sport. Um, You know, when you see teams or individuals that significantly um, outperform the progression. So one of the things that I think about Um, If you're coaching a team over the course of a season is this concept of if you as a coach are really having a unique impact and you're really doing something innovative or different or just, you know, you're doing something better than what the athletes could get somewhere else, then you should be beating the curve. And this is a concept I used to talk about with um, athletes when I coached you know, a team in the context of like a organized season progressing to a championship or series of championship races um, was that we wanted to beat the curve. The idea is that there's a usual progression that plays out over the course of a season that um, you can look at, you know, and it's not this like perfectly predictive model, but the trend is generally there that people might, you know, an example, cod example might be if the average, you know, top seven runner in the division is improving by uh, 
60 seconds over the course of the season, you know, we want to be uh, 75 seconds better. But for us, you know, we would sometimes see that people would get to the state meet and they would run, you know, these out-of-the-box times. And, you know, they would run maybe like a minute faster than they had all season. Somebody who would maybe run 17.10 is suddenly run 16.08. And then this leads to this automatic assumption of like, wow, there's something going on there. One interpretation could be that, you know, they were able to turn that pain up to a 12. Um, and there's this thing with Malcolm uh, Gladwell where he talks about his experience with running and he, you know, makes the assertion that, you know, he just couldn't handle the level of, level of suffering necessary to do that. And, you know, I, Malcolm Gladwell is probably a more competent person than I am in a lot of things, but I don't really agree with that conclusion. I think that, you know, situational arousal, you know, how stimulated are we by something, you know, really matters. And when we go out and we get in a context where if we're, we're generally feeling good, and then for some reason that, you know, can feed into that. Um, and you'll see people who maybe only do like one or two road races and running, running road races a year, just go out and run out of their mind, right? And, you know, you might be out and be like, wow, this person, I wouldn't think that they would be past me, but they're steamrolling me right now. How is this happening? And I think it's because you can have that level of arousal be really high, right? And, but the interpretation might be like, wow, they really peaked. Um, and we tried peaking. I used to sort of think that was a thing, and I tried to read the stuff about it, and it didn't really make sense, but I sort of figured, oh, well, this people must know more than I do, so I'm just going to sort of like apply this based on what I can understand I'm supposed to do. And it didn't really seem to do anything. Um, and then, you know, one year I decided, well, we're just not going to do this anymore. And, you know, we ran nine or ten miles the day before the state championship and, you know, had the probably best performing uh, team at the state championship in the history of the sport in the state. You know, and we didn't peak or taper at all. You know, and I think that's sort of an illusion. You know, and one of the things that I came to see is that uh, these people aren't necessarily running these big PRs per se. It's just that they were repressing their performance because of the sort of asceticism requirements of their system, their training system all season. And so they might make that big jump, but it was probably more likely that, you know, these people fall flat on their face. And, you know, you would see people going all over the place, you know, like a dumping ping pong balls, you know, onto the floor, you know, over those, those three, the three championship meets the, at the end of the season, you know, they might have one good race and the other two would be garbage, you know, or they might have three pretty crappy races. And there would be some people though, who would really pull it together, but it was basically very unusual to see a team where everybody raced consistently and steadily, but we were doing that. And that was a part of beating the curve. So maybe we didn't show that big jump, but for us, it would be sort of rewinding back to, we got to that point by saying, well, if we think of this as something that begins in June, right? And we would talk about, well, how can we use the summer as a part of, you know, a continuation towards that goal? And, you know, I didn't emphasize or suggest this idea that, okay, you know, we need, should get out of shape, you know, in between every season of competition. 
and this arbitrary, well, you need to take these number of days off or, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like the body has evolved to be physically active. And like, we're already way too sedentary as it is, you know, and a lot of the programs that are like, oh, you know, we got to shut it down. Shut down what? I mean, you're running like 30 miles a week, maybe 25 to 30 miles a week at best anyway. And now people need to spend more time, you know, being inactive. And I think you can change the intensity of what you do. But like what we're talking about here is a distinction between systems. And what I'm suggesting is that, you know, I've tried to, in practice, um, and when I talk to adult athletes that I talk to now about this stuff, it's a similar kind of concept, except you're not applying it in this team situation, you know, where in the team situation, the challenge is to like, okay, like the sort of performance target or the like obstacle or adversity that you get to grapple with is like this season of competition, right? And you try to like do really well in all of the meets. And I was really proud of the fact, um, and I hope the athletes are proud of the fact that we went out and we got it done um, at the meets. Like every single meet, we went out and we raced. And that's the point of the sport, not to go out and avoid this stuff um, and avoid the adversity and avoid the competition. You want to go out and engage with it. And that was what our system was predicated on was performance. And so in a vacuum, as much as possible, you want to sort of vacuumize yourself and say, okay, I got to separate myself from these influences. But you can't do that now uh, these days without first being aware of those influences because otherwise they're there and they're going to passively affect um, you know, what we select, right? Because the systems, if we just take on the prevailing wisdom, the conventional wisdom of systems, we're going to find that like that isn't coming um, from a rational space. It's coming from a logical space. And that logical space we've said isn't something that's verified. It's just based on uh, what people should try to do. And now People say, well, studies show blank and studies show all different kinds of things. And sometimes when you look at the metadata, you might find that there's actually no conclusive evidence. And you know, this was a debate that I would sometimes have with people about stretching is there is no conclusive evidence that really favors stretching as a generic preventative practice. You know, and to me, that was a time waster, you know, just like, you know, and it's opportunity costs, right? Why would you spend 30 minutes doing stretching when you could spend that time actually exercising, you know, and like doing things that are actually like going to make a difference and be productive. And that the physiological verification is, I think, a totally misleading concept. I'm not rejecting physiology and, and science by any means, and I'm not saying that that has some sort of minor place. I think it's actually really important. But I think that the flaw is that physiology studies like are you know based on sort of like trying to understand the kinds of systems um, and practices that result from systems but that those things have been called out before they sort of reach the point where people are like well let's study this physiologically because like the systems are designed to enact these models of like discipline, right? Where it's like, well, let's create acts of discipline and those are going to be the training practices. And then we look at these people who are the most successful 
And those are the people who sort of survive that. And it's, you know, Jack Daniels, you know, I'm going to reference here positively and then maybe later more critically because I think he sort of constructed a example of a system and which maybe through no fault of his own, but, you know, ended up not really being perhaps the most successful or useful example of a system. But, you know, he talks about this idea that in practice, for you know, coaches, the idea of like throwing eggs against the wall, which I thought was a, is such a good metaphor descriptor that you take these eggs and you chuck them against the wall, and like you know, certain people survive and certain people don't, and the idea is that's a sort of inevitable. And he uses that, I think, as a proxy to talk about how like you know we're overtraining and and you know diminishing returns, and I think that you know sort of the idea that you know maybe after about forty miles a week we're probably getting you know, the vast majority of the benefit that we're ever likely to get from exercise. And, you know, I don't, that point, that's where I disagree. Because I don't think that's really true. I think that some of us, and maybe a lot of us, need a lot more physical activity to actually be able to be strong enough to exhibit competence. And that 40 miles a week of running, when you think about the kind of level of physical activity the human body is evolved to be able to do and should be doing. And you think about how sedentary a lot of Western uh, cultural norms of lifestyle have become um, over the last... I mean, it's ironic because as modern sport has developed, you know, over that long sporting century, um, you've also seen a massive increase in sedentism. And sometimes the consumption of sport with spectator sports seems to have encouraged us to spend time sitting down on furniture and discourage us from spending time being physically active. Because if we can't be the elite, right, and the system has told us we can't be the elite, then I guess all we can really do is, is watch in awe as people do what we're not good enough to do. But so what that means what we're studying with these systems is we're studying the examples that sort of make it through the gauntlet of can you meet the standard of discipline? And so we're not seeing any of the people out there whom, if they weren't subjected to these rigorous discipline expectations, they could do differently. And an analogy or a similar situation to this would be like in education, and I actually think really positively about um, public education. I think it's a great institution to practice, and I think it's terrible that people are so focused on, on tearing that down or criticizing that as a way to sort of prove their intellectual superiority. Um, but there's a concept in, you know, pedagogy and education of like behavioral approaches, right? Which is the idea is to sort of induce certain conformed behaviors. And as much as people worry about education, you know, being, um, you know, somehow like liberal or communist, the reality is, you know, if we're really honest about what goes on in education, and if you've spent time in systems of public education as an adult, um, you realize that like, they're actually like very conservative. They're, I think, shockingly conservative, you know, but this myth has emerged that they're, they're not. And the behavioral thing is an example of that, that. And that sort of flows again from that sort of discipline expectation. And remember, a lot of our sporting experiences, certainly in American culture, are coming through school, right? That that's where a lot of that sporting stuff comes from. Now, maybe that's going to be something that changes, um, you know, because maybe, you know, school sports just aren't going to meet that 
Uh, but I think that as activities and, and recreation and extracurriculars, those are probably not going to ever really go away per se. But like the top performing athletes might start to look outside and demand more autonomy from, you know, the high school coach as like the potential rewards of success um, are such that people just don't want to be subjected to whatever sort of arbitrary quality, um, you know, that the school system is able to staff for coaching these teams. But that idea of like a behavioral model basically says that like your ability to be successful in the classroom becomes a reflection of whether or not you can, you know, first meet the behavioral behavioral expectations of the classroom. And that if you sort of liberated those a little bit and asked like, okay, is this really necessary? You could do that differently. But it's hard to do that because the whole system of school and education has been designed around that from like the structure of classrooms to like the um, expectations of, you know, teachers um, as like authority figures um, and that students should like, you know, indicate you know, appropriate respect to that, all of this stuff perpetuates that. And in the same way, that's true with athletics. And I guess I'm saying it's not really a surprise that it's the case that these two things are similar because they there's a lot of intersecting space, right, that sports are so often extracurricular to our experience of school. And I think that it's important to recognize that. Although as adult athletes, right, we get to break out of that um, for sometimes positive and, and maybe sometimes not not so great results. But when we move in that new direction, I think that, you know, it's easy to forget, you know, maybe that this discipline stuff is still applying to us and still shaping, you know, what we're doing and what we're experiencing. And that we're taking these physiological findings, we're taking science and research, and well, that's validating that. But who are they studying, right? They're really studying the practices of people and you might say, well, the studies aren't necessarily done with elite, the elite athletes themselves per se. They're done, you know, in, you know, good, you know, methods and, and whatever. And they have control groups and they have, you know, try to find, you know, supposedly representative samples and blah, blah, blah. And it's still worth studying. I don't, I don't mean to say it's not worth studying. However, when we're trying to like think about this, the practices, right, might come from, well, you know, Pavel Nurmi or Jim Ryan or, you know, whatever, like the practices worth studying are the practices that create the best athletes and that the best athlete practices are then the sorts of methodologies that are going to be tried, try to be studied. And those methodologies that these best athletes are applying, excuse me, those, the methods that these best athletes are applying are coming from like discipline-based activities rather than performance-based activities. So like the discipline of accessing race pace, right, is applied, right? And so then like the best athletes are the people who can, for whom that works. And I think like, you know, I think a lot of times the people who are successful with that aren't the people who are like, wow, they just handled the most pain in the workout, but the other person is having the, the least difficulty. So like you might, if you think about the zones model of training, if you use like the seven zones, where zone four is sort of your 
lactate or your aerobic threshold or basically what can you do, you know, um, for a time trial for an hour, right? Let's sim- simplify that. Like you might have an athlete running their, you know, efforts and they might be doing them at like zone three, like the very high end of zone three. And you've got another athlete who's doing them at zone five. And so the athlete who is doing them in zone three is probably getting a more aerobic benefit and they're not going to be destroyed on a muscular level, right? And like me getting off the bus and being like, wow, my legs just can't handle sitting on the bus for, you know, two hours or three hours to get to this meet. Oh, well, you know, I mean, again, how, you know, naive, but that's what the system does is it prevents you from thinking in certain ways. That's the silencing effect. And, you know, but the athletes who aren't getting totally rocked doing these training sessions are the ones who are going to go out and they're going to bust a move in the race because they're not fatigued, right? And, and they also aren't mentally fatigued. They have the energy to go out and put it down. And that's ultimately because in the workout, um, they didn't have to work that hard, right? So then we apply these practices through studies to groups of you know, random people or hopefully random people or representatively random people and, and maybe not always. But when we apply those studies in that way, like we're only we're only applying and testing the methods that sort of met the standard of discipline in the first place because it's not acceptable to apply methods that aren't a reflection of discipline. The consequence being that we have standardized systems to approach this stuff that we can pick up and apply, right? We don't need to figure it out from scratch. We can, you know, take these things, find them, and just sort of put them in practice in in what we're doing if we're in the position to be a coach or if we're in the position as an athlete where we get to make our own choices about how we're going to engage with this stuff. But the things that we're picking aren't things that have been refined, you know, in a vacuum based on what's like the most beneficial for performance. These are practices and beliefs that come from like these external moral beliefs about the value of like discipline and, you know, you know, I guess like a kind of like athletic purity in a sense, right? That everything should be like really spatially neat and and organized and should meet this sort of, which is like a totally random, uh, meaningless criteria. And I think that what is more correct here, so let's like actually start talking about things that could maybe be done differently uh, as well. I think what could be a more corrective approach is something that I'm going to call self-referencing, which means rather than look at this external model of how do I become the disciplined person, how do I attain enlightenment, how do I transcend or, you know, hold off my baser instincts as a person, like, let all of that go. You know, that's a weight of 10,000 years, 15,000 years of, like, um, agricultural civilization forward, you know, what does it mean to be in a hierarchical society? You know, how do we get people to conform and obey uh, within that space? And that's like highly pollutive and, and toxic stuff. It doesn't have anything to do with what we're talking about, you know, or I mean, it, I, that was idiotic of me to say that. It has everything to do with what we're talking about, but it might not really have any place in trying to get to where we want to be, which is like, how can we get the most 
out of ourselves as athletes and then consequently have the best performance. And so like self-referencing and then feeling good, I think should be the two baselines for evaluating the usefulness of a system and then determining also like, should we just be kind of like creating and how can we create our own system? And so self-referencing can mean different things, and that's why I like the phrase. Self-referencing can mean thinking about you and like engaging with how you feel and teaching yourself to recognize the sensations that your body is generating during different kinds of physical activity and honing in on those and associating those um, with certain like outcomes and being able to target those, right? And like to know your body and know how you feel, which is going to always be a big reference point in this podcast. Self-referencing also means like not totally externalizing your criteria or your expectations of how you should train. I reported out happily running 80 to 85 miles a week you know, by my senior year in college. And I once again went out and vomited up, you know, some absolutely trash heap level cross-country races again. You know, and even though I was running 30 miles a week more than I was as a freshman, I didn't really, I wasn't going any better. I was going worse. And I don't actually attribute that to the act of running 85 miles a week. That's not true. I don't, I think that running 85 miles a week should have been better. The problem is the way that it was being done wasn't correct. There wasn't self-referencing. It was like discipline-centric. You know, I didn't think about taking it easy or doing recovery. I went out and tried to run as steadily as I could. And then, you know, we started heaping on the workouts. And I didn't do workouts over the summer. And I couldn't, probably, realistically, because of I was doing... I had enough fatigue already from what I was doing. And I was probably self-referencing better in the summer, but then, you know, I'd go to the season would start and you'd, I'd add the workouts in and I didn't compensate for that. And, you know, I think we had a culture of like anything less than seven minute pace uh, isn't productive. And I think, you know, the collective mindset became like, well, we should just be going out there and running kind of fast all the time when we train. And then even when I ran, you know, by myself or with just like a couple other people who are maybe a little less interested in putting the hammer down, every day, we still probably ran too fast. And, you know, I I think in fairness, it's possible that what, you know, coach wanted us to understand was that, you know, we're not trying to be productive every day. But if that messaging was there, like clearly we weren't processing it. Um, You know, and that's probably like, you know, an example of because our discipline mindset, you know, was causing us to interpret things in particular ways, right? And the way that we talked about stuff shaped the way that we thought about stuff, which led us to take certain actions that weren't really productive. But the self-referencing approach would be to be like, how do I feel, right? And when I would assign workouts to teams that I coach and when I talk to athletes, I don't like to necessarily assign paces per se, Right. Or if you do, I mean, it's supposed I want it to be like a check, like, you know, okay, you want to feel like this. This is the goal is to be working at this level of exertion. But here's the check on that. Like it shouldn't be better, faster than blank. 
And when my youngest brother and I have conversations about training, and I think, right, it's useful sometimes to, to get ideas um, from other people just through conversation. And one of the things that I throw out as a, as a suggestion is like, well, pull it back, right? Why do you need to run 520 pace if running 540 pace is just as effective, right? It's less fatiguing, you're less likely to have like negative effects and you get basic, you're going to get, I would argue, the same benefits, right? And so having those conversations by talking about this stuff in a different way, I think, you know, you're able to move the, you know, behavior as an athlete, our behaviors as an athlete in a different um, perspective. But the self-referencing thing, right, should lead into feeling good. That even when you're working hard, it should feel good. And that if I saw people struggling, I tried to normalize articulating, okay, this is how I'm feeling. And I mean, you would push people because it's also true that, you know, your sense, your sort of sensory experience of what does it mean to exert yourself, especially when you're getting into these activities for the first time, can be really disorienting and you can be really sensitive to things. And I swear the first run I did in eighth grade, you know, I had shown up for outdoor track and I hadn't done um, it anything that before. I had done swim team and, you know, other rec sports, but I hadn't done running before. And so on the first day, I was like, well, if you ran cross country, go over here. And I didn't go over there because I didn't do cross country. And so I proceeded to do wall sits and, you know, run up and down the bleachers. And it was like a joke for me, you know, and I guess I had had enough swimming, you know, fitness that doing this basic, you know, level of activity was absurd. And I went home and I said that. And, you know, I think my parents, you know, or dad said effectively, like, well, you shouldn't be there. You should be with the cross country people. And so, you know, the next day I did that. And, you know, in running approximately two miles, I, I feel like I basically blacked out. It was like the most traumatic, insane thing I'd um, ever done. So like massive contrast, right? Um, but there was no conversation about how it should feel. It was just I don't even remember being told. It just seemed like all of a sudden we're running down and then we're turning around and we're running back. And it was just like this blur of insanity. Um, probably still ranks as one of my top 10 most traumatic runs. You know, and that's saying something because that's a list that I'm constantly, you know, evolving and finding new qualifiers for, you know, despite my best efforts to be smarter about stuff. Um but if you have that self-referencing approach, right, it should be about, you know, feeling good. And I, that, wouldn't have, that shouldn't have been the experience that, you know, I was having. Um, and, like, it is hard, you know, but, like, it should even be when it's hard, it should feel good because it should be stimulating and engaging because you're self-actualizing. And when you don't want to do it anymore, when people say, I'm done, I, this isn't for me anymore, it shouldn't be because they can't take the pain, it should be because that, like, they're no longer able to get that sense of reward. And I think people who do this stuff for a long time or sort of indefinitely are the people who really probably find that self-actualizing thing to be enjoyable. But the discipline approach, you know, doesn't make space for self-referencing because it's about, like, I want to be better, better, better relative to everybody else. And that's all that matters is just, like, dominating other people at all times, in all ways, 
And that's what we, that's what we've said. Like, that's what we glorify. That's the path towards legendary status. And, um, you know, I think that's, you know, becomes really limiting because it, then you're developing systems which are rewarding discipline. It creates opportunities for people to exhibit that level of discipline. And it basically pushes away people who probably would benefit from a self-referencing model and from a feel, feeling good model. And so we have this like empirically driven thing. I mean, you could argue, you know, are we all still without realizing and worshiping at the altar of Pavo Nermi, you know, drilling it, you know, with his, you know, stopwatch? At, you know, is that really, you know, that's efficient for a machine, but people aren't machines, right? And is there sort of an industrialized mindset about people um, that like, you know, implying industrial efficiency to training, but that might not be actually true because we're also psychological and emotional uh, organisms that function in organic ways that are way more complicated. We're not um, basic engineered, um, you know, mechanical processes. And that a highly structured geometric thing might look aesthetically pleasing, but that might not be what's actually the most beneficial because that's not really where people maybe are going to thrive, right? And that self-referencing might look rougher or less idealized. I mean, and that you don't have this perfect symmetry, right? But like it becomes about the symmetry and the aesthetic of aesthetic discipline, if that makes sense. And so then like the, the just screw it approach, um, the hedonistic approach um, I think is also not actually the kind of alternative, we've talked about this before, that we think it is. I think it's also basically just sort of like collapsing back into a version of that discipline system that's not so, that's sort of, again, like um, comparatively ego-driven, right? Where it's not like I want to feel good because it's good to feel good, but I need to feel good by being better than other people because that attitude of screw it, you know, we're just out here to have fun or like it doesn't matter what other people are doing. Like you just need to be better relative to yourself. But notice how people aggressively broadcast how they're doing that so well. Well, by the act of broadcasting that, that's a form of comparison, right? So yes, you're saying I'm improving better relative to myself, but, you know, those same people are like, just by doing a marathon, you're special, right? Just completing is the achievement. Well, so what does that mean? That means like, so now, um, because I improve better relative to myself, now I'm superior to everybody else. So you can take this self-reference point of like, well, I was at A and now I'm at B and look at you, you're still at A and like I completed, so I'm I'm better. Like I'm a I'm a part of right. Just doing a marathon makes you elite, right? Um, so like, what's meaningful though? Like I don't think either of these things are ultimately meaningful. And systems that are meaningful are going to be systems that are going to be important and effective. I want to feel good. I want to find a competitive challenge and feel improvement. Right? It's okay to want to feel better relative to you and better relative to others. Um, and it's not necessarily that the others have to be constant as a reference point. And it's not necessarily that being better relative to you 
or better relative to others, that also doesn't have to be like continuously progressing. Um, it becomes like discovering and doing things that are moving you in the right direction. Like that's the puzzle that you're trying to solve. And if you think about it, literally doing puzzles, like the, if you finish a puzzle, like that's great. But like what's rewarding about it is finishing it and then also doing it. So it's not about like abandoning the outcome. And it's also not about like suffering through in order to get to that outcome. It's like both of those things are valuable and like that's important. Because in life, like much of what we do doesn't actually let us feel good. You know, like what you be when you grow up, I think is a horrible question. I, you know, it might be toxic, maybe. Whoa, right? Toxic. I think it might be toxic because it creates this idea that, you know, okay, when we can grow up and be something, oh, that's going to be meaningful. But I think most of us feel like a pretty intense alienation of labor where we're like doing these things and it like doesn't matter, you know, and like we really can sort of disappear and not show up or fall asleep and things just sort of go on, right? Like we're not meaningful and that doesn't feel good. But I think that we're left with this thing where like both the discipline model and the model of um, hedonism, right? Hedonistic, bacchanalist, nihilist, whatever. Um, I think they're both strategies to feel good. The discipline thing says that like, you know, instant gratification doesn't feel good. What feels good is like getting to this, you know, the, the goals or the outcome of the path. Hedonism says like the path is so ridiculous and insane like, just come out, just step off the path and just, like, do this stuff. It will, this is what you want, right? If it's good to you, it must be good for you. But, you know, we want to feel good. And I don't think any of those actually get there. Because what we need is we need an experience of training and of sport that feels good, that the system needs to feel good, you know, every day. Right, And even when it's like hard and challenging, it needs to feel good. Like sometimes the act of doing it itself, you know, stride for stride, you know, heartbeat to heartbeat feels good. And then sometimes you're doing it and it's like challenging and maybe there's a sense of like, man, I, I want to stop. This is hard, you know. But then when you finish that period of work, you know, maybe it's a repetition, maybe it's a whole session you feel good because you did that. And we need a combination of those things. And maybe five-sevenths of that needs to be just the act of doing it is good and stimulating. And then maybe two-sevenths of that can be something where like, okay, I kind of want to like be done with these particular specific periods of work or effort. But overall, when I'm done, I feel great because of what I accomplished. Like that's the combination of these things. And that's neither discipline nor hedonism. And, like, you know, I think we go to sport and we want to recognize it like it's an outlet for the kind of control that we don't get to have in our life, right? You know, and if we, if we, even if we are fortunate and privileged to be well-educated and, you know, have some sort of a career or profession, like, even then, most of us, like, we don't own the means of production. You know, it's not our, like, purely our invested capital that we're making decisions about. Um, we don't own an intellectual property. We don't have total creative license. But in sport, like when you get to do that, like you get that benefit. 
okay? Or you should. And I think if you can experience that, like that's your capital that you get to invest as you would like to do so. And that's really powerful. And then I think when people are in the role of coaches, like they should be respecting that. And it's like the athletes need to be stakeholders, right? They need to be on the board of investors, okay? They're not there to be laborers, right? That industrial model of like management and, you know, behavioral conformity isn't healthy. And then we use the physiology to validate this stuff. And let's talk about that. Let's talk about some examples of systems and how we use those systems to try to validate our practices. So we talked about Jack Daniels. Let's talk about that a little bit more. So the Daniels running formula for me was something that was probably the first time I recognized that like a external system was being applied. And I experienced this um, in high school. And for people who are not in the sport of running or people who do running but aren't familiar with it, I would say the basic summary of the Daniels running formula is that you know, Jack Daniels did some research and he tried to study the practices of elite athletes um, and what are the kinds of ways that they trained and then tried to look at, well, what's the physiology behind that, right? You know, these different efforts they're doing, how are they sort of distributing their work across these different physiological systems? And he arrived at some conclusions about what that looks like. Um, and sort of the big thing that most people find to be the driving force behind this is his VDOT chart, where you take a performance um, of an athlete and, you know, a time trial, maybe over the distance of a mile, and then he correlates that to a sort of a hypothetical, you know, VDOT, which I think, frankly, you could say is extremely similar in some senses to the functional um, threshold power the FTP concept that's become so popular in cycling because of the proliferation of power meters. And, um, you know, you look at the VDOT chart and it defines for each sort of category of work, you know, um, from sort of like endurance, long run tempo, you know, up to, you know, speed work, um, what you should be doing. And then he describes, you know, in his book, um, you know, in his, his writing and, and stuff, he talks about, you know, what should the workouts look like with that kind of stuff and what should the rest be. And for us, the practice of this was to sort of sit down and take your review with um, coach what the your PR was, right? Um, and then, you know, you were referenced these times and like that was like supposed to be your training paces, and of course that broke down for us because like we didn't know how fast we were running. Like I would say probably most people didn't have a wristwatch. And then even if they did, you know, this is before this is three or four years before you started to see GPS watches. And it's probably like six or eight years before GPS watches really started to become like a popular thing. I mean, when GPS watches first came out, there was a guy on the team. Um, that I ran on in college who had one. And I think basically we thought they were like a, a freaking loser for using a GPS watch because we just thought it was so bizarre and, you know, inauthentic. But now, like, you know, it's like just it's just the norm, you know, like, of course, you have a GPS watch. Like, why wouldn't you right? constantly know 
how fast you're running based on the information from global <laughs> positioning satellites, which is just like crazy <laughs> when you think about that in the context. But going back to that system, like we just went out and ran. Like we didn't know how fast we were going. It's not like we didn't even calibrate. So I'm like, okay, let's go to the track. We're all going to run a 400. Okay, you see that? That's your pace. Now you need to go out and do that. But we just like went out and, and ran and, and that was that. And it was totally mindless and totally uncontrolled. So, you know, we want to caveat this concept of the system to say that to the extent that people are executing it in practice, it's probably pretty variable. Um, but the default was definitely to run kind of hard anyway. But if you really apply that um, system, like it's saying that, okay, you want to train according to, you know, this model and you need to distribute your work approximately in these paces. And I think it's very industrial and it's very geometric and it's very like, you know, neat and it looks good, right? And it's appealing because of the way it looks. It's like managerially appealing, and, you know, you go out and you do these workouts. But I think the idea that people are working out at that pace and that's appropriate for them is absurd. Now, one of the complicating factors is that if you're going to do it, the model actually says that you should go out and set your um, benchmark by doing a time trial. And, like, that's not something that we did. Um, we were referencing the personal best we ran from 12 months ago which is like totally invalid. Um, and I think nobody was really, people like we're not at that point. So then when we did go to do workouts, if the workouts were based on that tempo, people couldn't do the workouts or if they, ex if they completed the workouts, they were just way too hard. And then, you know, he also has rest parameters, um, you know, of like three to one work to rest ratio, sort more or less for some of the stuff. But we were taking like, minimal recovery, you know, like 60 seconds recovery. And it basically, it didn't matter how recovered we were. It was just like, okay, now go again. Instead of like, are we actually recovered enough to execute again? And so we'd be bombing this stuff. And my favorite story was, uh, from my experience, was my senior year towards the end, um, I was assigned to run... Uh, the coach had this other like slider chart that he would slide and he would somehow tell you what you should do. And somehow he got this chart out and I was told to do six 300s um, in 39 um, with a 60 second recovery. And I literally said, well, that's the qualifying standard for the state meet and indoor track for the 300. And it just didn't like seem to resonate for whatever reason. And to be fair, I don't think I was like a priority athlete. Although then you can make the argument of like, well, you know, even if you're not a priority athlete and you're like, excuse me, this is running the qualifying standard for the state championship and indoor track six times in a row with a 60 second recovery um, in training shoes in a non-competition and context. And like, by the way, I like don't even run the open 400. Um, you know, <laughs> is a little bit flawed. Um, and like, I just like went for the warm up and then just kept going and like didn't. And then I just like went home because I was like, this is just so idiotic. Like, I can't do that. That's impossible. 
Like, I'm not physically capable of running. I don't know if I've ever been physically capable of running a four, a 300 in 39 seconds. You know, or if I, you know, maybe I could have theoretically done that, but that would have been like a peak performance. You know, never mind doing that six times in a row. But like the belief in that system was just there so that it's a silencing effect. Like I raised this point, which is like, that's the qualifying standard for the state meet. I'm just supposed to do that in training. Like I'm not a 149, 800 meter runner. And even if I was, why would I be doing that workout three days before the state championship? You know, which, I mean, for me, I was like going to run the, the, the um, four by eight, which I proceeded to, despite blowing off the workout, I proceeded to totally suck out in that relay anyway. But, you know, there was, that was probably an aggregate of all the stuff that had been, you know, building up, you know, right? The approach wasn't there. It wasn't self-referencing. It wasn't saying, where am I now? Where do I want to be? How do I feel? Am I feeling good? It was just doing things methodically and systematically. And, um, you know, cycling, I think an example of this is the way that FTP ideas have sort of moved to create these idealized models of training. And I think an example of that could be the two by 20 minutes at FTP. Um, and I'll be honest, I've never even bothered. Like I just know from past experience, like my brain is just sort of so traumatized from so many messed up, um, and failed workout experiences. I just like balk and it's like my brain just like shuts down, um, with structured interval training. I just don't want to do it because I just have such a negative association. And so when I try to do that stuff, I have to really back off because I don't get, like an adrenal response to that, like I do with racing, I get a just like screw this, like because it's like anticipatory failure. You know, the some of the I was so trashed trying to do some of the workouts in cross country by the end of college that I would just like walk for thirty seconds in the middle of the, the long repeats through the trails. You know, because I just couldn't move. And I just knew it wasn't working and it was just so frustrating. You know, and, and then the discipline model tells you the problem is you're weak, right? So it's like there's no alternative for that. Um, like you just are supposed to embrace the suck. But uh, my youngest brother, you know, we kind of tried that as an idea of like the 20 minutes or like doing 15 minutes. And, you know, he said, well, what if you can do three by 20 minutes? We're going to do four by 15 minutes. And like he could do it and he could execute it. But it just like wasn't sustainable it wasn't something he could really keep up with. And so it's like this system, again, now you look at that and you say, well, that's like industrialized. And like, okay, you did it like two times. And then by the third time, you're like, this is awful. And you're like, okay, basically, I don't want to do that again. And if you're in like a program where you can sort of get like flogged out back onto the trainer or onto the track and, you know, forced to execute, maybe you can keep doing that. But it's still then, I think, depleting your mental energy and are you going to really have the enthusiasm or the desire to want to like go fast and challenge yourself and and run hard or ride hard or go hard in a race when you've been tapped out from the training? And so like we say now that like when we're self-referencing, it's like, can we do this for an extended period of time? Or like you might idealist, idealistically say, oh man, if I could do these repeat 200s, you know, and such and such, and you know, 30, 30 or 31, that'd be sick. Okay, but like if you can't do that for five months, what's the point? So run them in 37. And then if you really can do them in 31, you'll just sort of like 
naturally start being like, okay, this is so easy. I'm just going to go a little bit more. And you'll progress down to where you're at the right intensity. And now you're going fast and you're feeling good. Instead of this model of like, well, this is what the elites did. We have this physiology that validates this. And we use this to like stop people from questioning what they're experiencing. Because all the research shows blank. But the research is flawed because it's only evaluating practices that have like been tailored through things that meet that discipline model, the discipline expectation of how we think training should look and how we think training should work. And like, so these, the systems, you know, whether it's Jack Daniels, whether it's like these FTP models of training, like it's all an opportunity cost thing because for a lot of people, like if they don't like your next best alternative is you're a chicken with your head cut off. Like you don't know what to do. Right. And you're at the mercy of the information. And so like you might just like do basically nothing if you don't have a structure. So you're you're it's like you can do this system, which maybe isn't that great, but your comparison would be doing this other thing, which might be doing nothing or doing totally random stuff, which is like totally basically ineffectual. So it gives a lot of evidence to these systems. So even though you're sort of now on this discipline path. And you're like experiencing all this adversity and you're like, I mean, why do people do these marathons and they like stop training and like people like normalize and they're just desperately normalizing this. Oh, you got to take a break. You got to take a break because like secretly everybody's like burnt out and they're like, I freaking hate doing this, but I don't want to admit that I hate doing it because then like I'm, I'm weak and I don't look like this like virtuoso of, of discipline. And, you know, I, I don't, like, have that appeal, especially for people who are like, I need to commercialize this in social media. Well, I need to perpetuate that narrative. So it's like, you know, enjoy my well-deserved break. Now back to the grind. Like, give me a break. Like, that kind of talk isn't empowering. It's entrapping, you know, and it forces us to conform to these models. And the idea of, well, you've had the break, so, you know, now you can go back to that. You know, we don't really want to go back to that. But like, and, and you know, maybe this is more of this Percy Cerruti thing, I guess, without really realizing it, but of like, you know, it's a little bit more like undefined and self-referential. And it's about like putting yourself in a space where like you want to do this work and you want to perform it because it's meaningful and valuable and rewarding. And when we think about these systems of training, like, I don't think that we really are arriving at something that really conveys the value that we want. And so in the last part of this big uh, opening for the podcast, we're going to talk about our exit ticket. And exit ticket is when we're going to try to say, what can we practically do with this? Like if you've listened to all this stuff, right, there's always a sense of what's actionable. And I think all this stuff is actionable, but let's give some, we're going to give some examples of how we can specifically apply this and make meaning of this. But the key takeaway is that when we change our reference points, we change the experience. When we change our strategy, we change the experience. And that when we change our approach, we change our outcomes. And that all of these changes mean that most people can have a much better um, time. They can feel faster, feel stronger, do new things as athletes. Um, but we have to look for ways of understandings that go beyond the limitations of this discipline, hedonistic dichotomy, and the systems that are created to reflect that versus reflecting what's actually optimal for performance.